Coming up on Philosophy Talk. A lot of people's untrained intuition would be that if you just draw districts without regard to, say, party, 40% of the vote would get 40% of the seats. And actually, when you model it, you can see that that's just not so. One person, one vote. What could be simpler? You can get away with crazy extreme outcomes with benign shapes if you try. Is it mathematically possible to create a true democracy? You can turn 40% of the vote into 80% of the seats this way, if you're ruthless about it. Everything counts in large amounts. Our guest is Moon Duchin, professor of mathematics at Tufts University. Everything counts in large amounts. I just want to find 11,000 780 votes, which is one more than we have. Democracy by Numbers, coming up on Philosophy Talk. Shouldn't everybody have an equal vote? Isn't majority rule just an excuse to keep minorities down? Is a truly fair democracy even possible? Welcome to Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Except your intelligence. I'm Josh Landy. And I'm Ray Briggs. We're coming to you from our respective living rooms via the studios of KALW San Francisco. Continuing conversations that begin at Philosopher's Corner on the Stanford campus, where Ray teaches philosophy and I direct the Philosophy and Literature Initiative. Today, we're thinking about democracy by numbers. <laughs> the numbers are simple, Ray. One person, one vote. We should decide everything by majority rule. But really, everything? Like whether minorities should have human rights? Whether to burn down our national parks? If the majority voted to throw the Constitution off a bridge, would you do it too, Josh? <laughs> okay. All right, I agree. Some things shouldn't be up for a vote. But, but, you know, for everything else, like budgets, traffic laws, school boards, well, I think it's okay to use majority rule for those. What if the majority is ignorant and confused? Well, then we should figure out ways to pay for better education. I mean, what are you saying? You want rule by a minority party that doesn't have the country's best interests at heart? Well, I didn't say that. But democracy is complicated. You can't just defer to more than 50% of the people 100% of the time. Why not? I mean, isn't that the way to be fair? Well, not necessarily. The thing is, the majority opinion might be inconsistent. I, I don't get it. I mean, let's say 52% of the people vote for better housing or, or God help us for Brexit. I mean, isn't that a coherent position? I mean, maybe horribly misguided in the latter case, but, but coherent. But but things don't always work that way. Suppose you have three possible solutions to a budget crisis. You can raise taxes, you can reduce spending, or you can run a deficit. And suppose a third of the population supports each of those options. Okay, but I don't see the problem here. I mean, reasonable people can disagree. That doesn't mean anyone's being inconsistent. Well, I'm not saying that the individuals are inconsistent. I'm saying that the group as a whole will be inconsistent. Look, a majority is going to be against raising taxes, and a majority is going to be against reducing spending, and a majority is going to be against running a deficit. Uh, okay, I see it now. So, so these three are the only options, but if you take a majority vote, the group as a whole is going to reject all of them. Exactly. So voting creates as many problems as it solves. Well, I don't know. I mean, is it really the voting that's the problem? What if it's just the way you divide everything up? I mean, you, 
you can't have people vote separately on taxes, spending, and deficit. Those things are all connected. That's why we elect representatives. They use their expertise and judgment, whether well or badly, mm. to decide problems like that. It's complicated problems, right? I mean, we don't just have a referendum on every single issue that comes along. Well, now it sounds like you're the one who wants a minority ruling over us, you know, as long as we vote them in. Well, voting them in makes a difference, right? I mean, electing our representatives makes them accountable to us. If we don't like their policies, we can just vote them back out. Yeah, unless they change the rules in order to stay in power. <laughs> when would that ever happen? <laughs> I know, right? Okay. Okay, but if voting on the issues doesn't work and voting on representatives doesn't work, then what are we supposed to do? Well, I think we really need strong social institutions. You know, branches of government that actually hold each other accountable, independent news media, schools that teach kids about civics and critical thinking. Yeah, but but also maybe we need to rethink the way we vote so we're less focused on picking a winner and more likely to take a range of issues into account. Oh, yeah? How's, how's that supposed to work? I'm so glad you asked. In recent years, civil rights lawyers have filed lawsuits forcing cities to change their voting systems. We sent our roving philosophical reporter, Holly J. McDeed, to find out why. She files this report. Robert Rubin got a start in civil rights law in an unlikely way. In 1973, he landed a job teaching children with developmental disabilities in New York. While there, he learned the administration was using psychotropic drugs to medicate and discipline students. And so before I knew what the term meant, I was a whistleblower. He turned over evidence of the abuse to the ACLU and was asked to testify about it during the trial. I was sitting on the witness stand in the federal court in Brooklyn, and I uh, sort of had this flashing notion that I could be more effective as a civil rights advocate. So he decided to go to law school, and in 1979 became the sole attorney for the ACLU in Mississippi. He tried cases in front of a judge named Man of the Year by the Ku Klux Klan. He didn't take too kindly to a Jewish Yankee boy. Now he's focused on using the power of the law to enforce voting rights. Power structures don't seek power uh, voluntarily. They never have, and they probably never will. Rubin has sued local municipalities over at-large elections. That's where council members must win the vote of entire cities or counties rather than in districts. That can make it more difficult for people with fewer resources to compete and harder for candidates of color to win. In 2017, Rubin and others sued the city of Santa Clara over its at-large system, arguing that it dilutes the votes of minority communities. The city is roughly 40% Asian. This is a system I might add, it's been in effect for 70 years, and in that 70-year period, there was not a single Asian-American elected to the city council. Then in 2018, after a court order, Santa Clara residents began voting for council members in districts rather than citywide. That same year, Raj Chahal was elected as the first Indian-American council member in Santa Clara history. He was interviewed by Yo! India TV afterwards. You're one of the senators who has made India proud, who is representing the community locally here in the United States. I'm lucky to be elected as the first uh, Asian-American council member from the city of Santa Clara and a big sport uh, from our own community. This was just one of many lawsuits filed in recent years over at-large elections. Karina Quintanilla sued the Riverside County city of Palm Desert over its at-large elections in 2019. In a settlement, Palm Desert agreed to switch to a two-district election. The next year, Quintanilla decided to run for a seat on the council. 
being able to allow me to focus on a district that has a population of roughly 10,000 instead of 50,000 makes a gigantic financial ability and even the playing field for a new person to come in. And she won, defeating the incumbent to make history as the first Latina elected to the council in Palm Desert history. The lawsuit also called for switching to ranked choice voting, where voters pick candidates by order of preference. The idea is that voters want options. When we're hungry, hey, I'm going down the street to X place. What do you want? Oh, give me an A, give me a B. Or if they don't have that, how about a C? And if all else fails, even a D. So we, we have preferences of what we will be satisfied with, or sometimes we're very close on two candidates. Civil rights attorney Robert Rubin says California has made some progress when it comes to voting rights, but there have also been major threats nationwide. In 2013, the Supreme Court gutted a key part of the Voting Rights Act. That allowed nine states, mostly in the South, to change their election laws without federal approval. Justice Antonin Scalia described the provision as racial entitlement. Whenever a society adopts racial entitlements, it is very difficult to get out of them through the normal political processes. Rubin remembers sitting near the late Congressman John Lewis during the oral arguments for that case. To see the look on John Lewis's face as Justice Scalia was talking about a post-racial society in which racial discrimination protections were no longer needed. Was, uh, was a difficult thing to witness. Democrats renewed the push to restore the key voting rights provisions shortly after Congressman Lewis died. Mine, dear friends, your vote is precious, almost sacred. It is the most powerful non-violent tool we have to create a more perfect union. It may seem like a small way to uphold democracy, but on the local level, Rubin and others continue to challenge cities holding onto at-large voting systems. The city of Santa Clara has fought back against the ruling in that case, but recently lost an appeal. For Philosophy Talk, I'm Hodge McDeed. Want to hear more? You can find the complete episode on iTunes Music, or for unlimited listening, become a subscriber at philosophytalk.org.